welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. My name is Hannah Emerson. I'm a news reporter at Madden America. You can find our science news coverage at maddenamerica.com slash research dash news. Today, I get to talk to clinical practitioner and multicultural and feminist psychologist, Dr. Lillian Comas-Diaz. She has been involved in the Committee on Women in Psychology and the American Psychological Association, where she played a major role in creating Division 45, the Society for the Psychological Study of Ethnic Minority Issues, becoming its secretary-treasurer and editor-in-chief of its journal, Cultural Diversity and Mental Health. She is author of several books on multicultural care and editor of many others, and her career focus spans ethnocultural approaches to mental health cultural competency, feminism and gender studies, intersecting identities, social justice, women's spirituality, and multiculturalism. She recently introduced a special issue in the American Psychologist Journal on the latest psychological research and what her team calls racial trauma, which we will get to explore in this podcast. Just this month, she was awarded the American Psychological Association Gold Medal Award for Life Achievement in the Practice of Psychology. Congratulations, Dr. Comas-Diaz, and welcome to the MIA podcast. Thank you, and I am delighted to be here today. Thank you. I'm also very grateful that you're here today and have your voice among the others at Madden America who grapple with science, psychiatry, and social justice. So to get as much as we can from you, let's get started with um, perhaps you could connect us to how you've grown to research ethnocultural approaches to mental health. Maybe it was a response from your own personal story or your psychological training. Yes, absolutely. Being a mixed-race woman, a woman of color, and having a transnational background, meaning that I was born in Chicago, some Puerto Rican parents, and then we moved back to the island. So I grew up in Puerto Rico, and then I came back for studying to the United States. All of those experiences informed my personal And my professional development as a clinical psychologist and as a multicultural psychologist and as a feminist psychologist. Could you say a little bit more about how that movement led you to be more intertwined with them in multiculturalism? Sure. Having to deal with different cultures, you know, having to deal with changes due to cultural shock, cultural Mm -hmm. uh, adaptation. Um, moving back and forth really sensitized me to the importance of having a broader uh, lens to look at culture and therefore how important is to be culturally committed to being culturally competent as a psychologist but also as a person given what we've been dealing with right now in the United States. It's very important to have a vision that is not limited by ethnocentric perspectives. We have to be more global in our perspectives, particularly knowing that the United States is a nation of immigrants, supposedly. So it's important to to um, address the richness that diversity brings into our culture. Absolutely. Um, I'm thinking about this vision not limited by ethnocentric perspectives that you're talking about. And I wonder if that could feel like a good time to get grounded a little bit in your work. Maybe you could describe the ways that it can be psychologically difficult to be a person of color 
or an ind- indigenous individual in the United States today? Absolutely. Well, we know that um, race is a major issue in the United States. And even though we're seeing it more prominent right now, it has always been a major issue. Uh, the history of people of color in the United States have been quite um, difficult and traumatic, and there have been a lot of uh, gains. But still, right now, we're we're seeing a resurgence of, um, let's call it xenophobia, that's um, hated of the, the strange, the different person. The kinds of racism that we've been seeing right now are really quite obvious, and uh, we can uh, operationally define what are the results of racism just by looking at there's an increase in hate crimes. Um, there's um, the relationships between people of color and communities of color and the police, for example, is extremely conflictive. Um, the the systems of uh, the penal systems, we have more people of color incarcerated when compared to white individuals who have committed similar kind of uh, crimes. Um, even the current political climate right now, where race is becoming a, a political issue for those people running in public and, and at some extent is being politically weaponized. So, yes, um, the whole situation of race is quite relevant to our situation here. And um, unfortunately, research shows that for people of color, uh, racism is um, is not healthy. In fact, it's actually, it creates a lot of mental health problems and uh, physical problems. Um, even more than that, Unfortunately, there's research that also shows that people of color who are exposed to racism and then when they have children, there's an intergenerational uh, effect. In other words, the children of people of color who have been dealing with racism tend to have more susceptibility to physiological trauma triggered by uh, racism. So that's why we we talk about the concept of racial trauma. Racial trauma, even though it shares some similarities with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, it is a completely different phenomenon from PTSD. Uh, In fact, uh, racial trauma is unique because different from PTSD, racial trauma is the result of a sociopolitical trauma. In other words, um, there's an insidious uh, type of distress that many people of color and other marginalized individuals uh, experience while they're living in in a society where racism, heterosexism, classism, all those kinds of isms are making the society oppressive towards those targeted groups. So this uh, racial trauma, the other reason why it's unique is because it relates to the cumulative attacks that minority people, particularly people of color, receive, even though the the person, the perpetrators may not intend 
to attack people. They can be intended or unattended, but they are uh, in the form of microaggression. So these experiences not only include the attacks, but also any threats that of harm, of injury, and also any experience where the person is witnessing where attacks are being uh, portrayed to other people of color. So we call that the vicarious racial trauma. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. You've you've mentioned a little bit about microaggressions too, and I was hoping that could be a good example of racial trauma in action. Do you have any direct examples of microaggressions that you could explain to our listeners so they might understand what this looks like? Yes. First of all, uh, let me add before I get into more specific with microaggressions that racial trauma is a situation where um, we cannot medicalize it because, again, it's different from a medical situation like PTSD because the origins or the roots of the racial trauma has to do with history, has to do with um, oppression, has to do with social political issues. And that's, those are the areas that we need to address at a more collective level that, of course, they've been transmitted in individually, but also in communities. So going back to your question of microaggressions, yes, what is interesting, I was making the connection that the person who first coined the term microaggression was actually an African-American psychiatrist, Chester Pierce. And we psychologists, psychologists like that are Sue and other have popularized the term um, and they have a lot of, um, there's a lot of literature on microaggressions. And again, the issue here is that the effect on the person who's being the victim of a microaggression is that it's a negative and hostile uh, message, sometimes derogatory, towards a person of a marginalized group, in this case, people of color. And again, the perpetrators may not be aware of what they're engaging into a negative racist behavior. For instance, asking Asian Americans or Latinx Americans which country they they came from, even though they've been born and raised here. More another microaggression that is more popular nowadays is go back to your country. When these are people who have been born and raised here, another example would be. Um, uh, you don't look Asian American, you don't look Latino, being ignored by um, clerks, if you're in a store in favor of uh, white customers, um, the infamous driving white black or driving white brown. I mean, there's a lot of types of microaggressions that happened on an ongoing basis. And the issue with microaggressions is that if it's happening only once or twice, uh, most people can cope with it. But it's the insidious and persistent um, activity that people of color are subjected to uh, with this microaggression, either to themselves, to their loved ones, or to anybody else, like in a vicarious um, trauma, racial trauma. 
And again, having to deal with that and trying to negotiate with the person who commits a microaggression at times can backfire because there's a tendency of the person that engages in a microaggression uh, towards a racial minority to justify their behavior because they don't they don't get it why their um, behavior is offensive or is um, attacking the person and because of that actually as as long as 2000 in 2000 the general surgeon, uh, the U.S. general surgeon, um, indicated that a main cause of the um, health disparities between communities of color, people of color, and white Americans has to do with the effect of racism. So this is uh, very clear that it's happening via microaggressions or via systemic issues or via historical issues that many people of color are being exposed to racism and particularly to microaggressions. Well, just to follow up on, you said that that might cause some justification in people who are committing the microaggression, whether aware or not of it. Would you, how would you respond to those who say that it's just how fragile young people are today is the experience of microaggression. And um, perhaps you would say that's a justification, but I wondered um, how they could maybe understand it more that it impacts mental health if it's persistent and insidious, as you described. I think that is a great question. And in fact, uh, let me mention that the concept of microaggression has been criticized from psychologists, okay? saying that there's not uh, specific scientific data, which, you know, we do have a lot of research and what have you. But in terms of whether being susceptible or being um, talking about microaggression, whether that affects people or not, what the research has shown is that even kids of color, when they are subjected to a microaggression or they uh, experience a vicarious uh, microaggression, that tends to affect the development of their cultural and uh, racial identity. In other words, it makes them feel um, um, negative about being black because if being a person of color is, uh, means that uh, people can engage in microaggression and nothing happens, then there there could be an internalization of that. Well, maybe um, uh, we're treated like this because we deserve it, that kind of stuff. So the internalization of when you're being attacked by not anything that you have done, but just because of your identity really affects not only your your the development of your identity, but it affects your mental and your physical health. And there's a lot of data on that. Yeah, thank you for explaining that a little bit more. It has me connecting back to what you said with um, that you cannot medicalize racial trauma, that it feels uh, like a completely different phenomenon from PTSD. And I'm wondering if you talk about racial trauma within the psychiatric context that we're in, 
Don't you mm-hmm. risk pathologizing people of color as, this, as though the problem is inside of them instead of with, within our society? Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> and that's why we've always been saying that racial trauma is unique and that we cannot medicalize it because the roots and the reinforcement of the condition has to do with historical. Remember, there's a historical trauma, meaning like um, Native Americans and African Americans and Latinx, they have been historically attacked. And that gets developed and it, it, it continues to be transmitted to people now. So the, uh, the issue of medicalizing a condition that even though it has physical and mental symptoms like anxiety, hypervigilance, you know, some symptoms from PTSD, of course, but it is unique in the sense that it is ongoing. There is not a response at a systemic issue of how to curtail or how to cope with racism. So people who suffer from racial trauma don't see any kind of relief in terms of what the system is going to do to ameliorate the situation. If anything, what's happening at this moment, and hopefully that will change, is that uh, there's a polarization right now in our country due to race. So using, again, a medical perspective is actually limited because if the person is seen as suffering from just trauma, the provider, whether it's a psychiatrist, mental health provider, or uh, a physician, will not incorporate a sociopolitical and historical perspective in the treatment. And that would be um, leaving out the root, the roots of the problem. So we also have to remember that in the um, concept of trauma is right now, it is um, centered on Western and European values which, you know, they're more responsive to an individualistic society where values such as self-agency and internal locus of control, in other words, I can do it, I I can be a master of of my universe, the meritocracy, uh, they're quite normative. And yes, merit is important, but this is not usually applicable to most people of color because they um, either get excluded from a meritocratic society or and or they also tend to have more collectivistic values. Collectivistic values are like connectedness, solidarity, being affiliated with others. You know, those are things that the medicalized concept of trauma is not addressing. So that's what we need, systems of treatment that are rooted in the history and in the context and in the sociopolitical situation. Because a lot of these medicalized um, um, approaches tend to be ahistorical and they're decontextualized. 
tell me what are your symptoms and that's it, we're going to deal with it without understanding the broader sociopolitical and even geopolitical context. I'm wondering, how do you identify racial trauma in a person or in a community if symptoms might not be the marker, such as you would with PTSD, or, or what? Mm-hmm. how would you mm-hmm. know it's there? Sure, that's a great question. You do a clinical assessment, like in anyone who's presenting with trauma symptoms, but then you also explore with the person, their history with, um, you know, how do you feel about being, or how do you identify, because some people may identify as a person of color, or they're not, how do you feel about that, and given your race, how has that been for you? So you do an assessment exploring their racial or ethnocultural um, history. There are also some uh, um assessment tools for people, you know, saying, have you been a victim of racism in the last two weeks, in the last three months? You know, there's, there, we have tools to do that. And after you finish the assessment, if it's coming up, you know that that's racial trauma. And then you're able to treat the symptoms that are more related to general trauma you know, by, by using the regular psychotherapy approaches, but also adding the component of treating the racial trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, the person's going to bring up the history, but you have to assess the history first. And a lot of people who are not having the social, social political perspective would not even ask about, have you had any experiences with racism, you know? And sometimes the client may not bring it up because the client, the person of color may not feel that the provider is going to pay attention to what he or she has to say about being a victim of racial trauma. So it takes a particular lens to identify that. And not only that, to give the person permission that, yes, we can talk about racism here if this is something that happened to you or to your loved ones or to your community. So the first thing is to, um, the therapists need to be more aware of their sociopolitical situation there and have some kind of racially uh, consciousness that, yes, race can be a reason for people becoming sick, having racial trauma. So that's a different thing from the mainstream dominant psychotherapy approach. The other thing is to engage in a process where the person can be helped to develop a what we call a critical consciousness, critical thinking. If the person has internalized that he or she is the cause of the trauma, in this case, the racial trauma, that is not helping. That's making the situation worse. So developing, helping the person to sort out what are the causes of this racial trauma versus the individual behavior helps a lot in order to not um, promote the client's internalization of it was my fault. And that's something that happens in other kinds of trauma victims, that the the victim many times is being uh, felt like he or she caused the trauma. 
So the critical uh, consciousness, what it means is developing an awareness of why this is happening and who benefits and against whom this is being done and what is the effect on society of this microaggression, racism. One effect is the preservation of the status quo. So what we talk about is using what is called liberation psychotherapy approaches, which is basically to help the person develop a sense of awareness, a critical awareness of his or her circumstances and how they contribute to their trauma, in this case, racial trauma. And then once that awareness is there, then become more liberated in terms of, well, maybe there's something that I can do about this to cope with this situation. One of these are called the colonial approaches, which basically helping the person to acknowledge the knowledge and the reality that they have as a person of color. For instance, we talk about racial trauma, but there's a lot of resilience among people of color and minority communities, okay? Because otherwise, um, if you look at the history, a lot of people of color would have not made it. So the resilience is there, it's inherent. And sometimes when people are suffering from racial trauma, they cannot connect with that resilience. So in a therapy approach with that perspective, then the, the provider helps the client to connect with that resilience. And that can be through art, that could be through community involvement, that could be through actually um, what we call social justice action. And what I want to share with you, Hannah, is that there, there's research that shows that when people are victims of, um, of a trauma, particularly if it's a sociopolitical or racial trauma, and then they become aware that it's not because of who they are, just because they happen to be a member of a marginalized group, that unto itself initiates a healing process. Because then the person doesn't internalize and doesn't victimize him or herself. So the other thing is, um, you know, social justice action. Um, and what we do is we don't tell people what to do. We tell people to say, how do you think you can engage? What would be for you a social justice action? Sounds like some empowering. Exactly. For some people, they just said, you know, raising my kids and doing a racial socialization, meaning teaching them what it's like to be, for example, a black male in this country is important. Um, Some people may say uh, contributing to some uh, helping volunteering in school. Other people may say, well, they go to church or something like that. But what I hear other people saying is either supporting or themselves running for public office to make sure that at a systemic level, things start to change. And I think we're witnessing some of that right now. 
Wow, it seems like there's um, these different layers to the modalities of healing and one that you mentioned, this critical consciousness development that yes. maybe as therapists you could support might protect that internalization of pathologizing that PTSD or other diagnoses might risk. Exactly. And also therapies for working with victims, people who have racial trauma, need to be connected to what's going on, the the sociopolitical and economic and systemic issues in society because if you are not aware of what's happening and because right now doing therapy is not about the person coming to the office and that's in between uh you know in four uh walls or what have you and then doing therapy is to also help the the, the client to live a healthier life outside of the therapy room and that's why, you know, the provider needs to know what's going on outside of those four walls room. There's another thing I want to share with you, but I think it's very, very important. Racism not only affects people of color or marginalized people, it affects all of us. It affects white people, it affects everyone. When there's a insidious a uh, situation like racism that is really fracturing our country. So, if people are aware of microaggressions and they try to, if they engage, because we all have areas of biases, we all do. That's why it's important that all of us, whether we're people of color or not, or white, to do an ongoing self-examination, self-evaluation, questioning yourself, you know, is this an ethnocentric perspective of mine? This person said that I hurt them because I said so-and-so. Well, my intention wasn't to do that, but let me hear what, how my words hurt, you know? And then considering that, giving the person the benefit of the doubt and saying, you know what, um, I'm sorry, thank you for telling me, and I'll try to not hurt people with my words. You know, that constant awareness is so crucial. And as I said to you before, we all need to be more culturally competent. And that means we're living in a multicultural society that's becoming more and more multicultural. And by being able to look at the other person as a mirror and reflecting back, okay, what did I do? And I'm projecting my life experiences onto this other person is not being culturally competent. And again, we can never say I am culturally competent. The only thing we can say is I am committed to becoming culturally competent. What do you think would promote people in saying I'm committed to becoming culturally competent and doing this ongoing self-examination? I think I think this is one of the things that, that's a great question, by the way, and a question that we have been uh, posing on ourselves. What mm-hmm. the research shows is, this is very interesting, that people, let's say white people who either in school or college are rooming with a person of a different race, they tend to be more amenable 
to commit to become culturally competent. What this translates in plain English is if you have a relationship with someone that's different from your culture, your environment, what have you, and that relationship is not marred by racism, that you develop a real relationship with that person, that then turns you more into becoming, if you're white, into what we call an ally. And what I mean by that, at least in, in, in our field, is when you become more and more conscious about uh, when somebody's committing or you're committing a, a, micro, a racial microaggression, that if you witness one, one uh, happening and just ignore it or not do anything about it or just turn around, that's really affecting you. But when you are an ally and you witness a situation when a racial microaggression is being committed and you say something about it, say, oh, you know what? It's, uh, this is, I can't understand why you don't think this is in my erasure, but, but, but it's racism from my perspective. So standing with the person he's saying, you know, this hurt me, your words or your actions hurt me is very important because not only the ally is being sensitized and going to feel better about him or herself, but also maybe helping to translate the message from the person of color who's suffering the racial trauma to the perpetrator, assuming that he or she is not aware that they are engaging in racism or in a microaggression. Thank you for explaining. It talks a little bit about your work with um, what an ally is and why that's important. I think an important message, take home message is that racism affects all of us. Mm-hmm. Many times we think it's only the person who is the victim of racial trauma, but it is endemic and it affects all of us. And I think it's important that we see that because a lot of people who engage in microaggression as perpetrators may not be aware that they're doing that. And by not creating themselves that critical awareness, that critical consciousness, they may continue to do that. And that means that they will be isolating themselves from people who are different from themselves. Is that what you're saying? Is that how that's connected to even racism would affect them and their own well-being? Yes, it affects them because they're also, there's a part of them that maybe it's feeling like they can be empowered to do this kind of thing again and again. And, you know, that's not good for your health either. If you're engaging in behaviors that other people are telling you that that is bad, that's racism, that's not, you know. And sometimes people may just graduate. I'm not saying that they want to from a microaggression to another kind of racial attack. Yes, and I'm thinking about how this feels very relevant now and and especially in today's political atmosphere, but also why now, you know, has mainstream westernized concepts of mental health failed to address problems for people with marginalized identities in America today? And, and why is this happening now in this type of work that you're doing along with your team? I think, yes, and thank you for mentioning the team, and I should have mentioned that, you know, this work is a collective 
effort. This is not one or two people. This is a huge collective effort of psychologists and other mental health providers and professionals who are seeing that not only racial trauma, but sociopolitical trauma, which involves, you know, being uh, a member of a marginalized group like an LGBTQ or an elderly or a poor person, meaning uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged and living in a society where it's oppressive or let's Think, let's talk about the Me Too movement, you know, the whole thing about gender and how certain behaviors in the past were, quote, accepted and not challenged or not seen in a critical awareness way has, has exploded in what's going on right now, you know? So it's important that we take a broader perspective of what causes illness, uh, what causes not being well in a wellness state, and address some of the social, economic, to some extent historical and political inequalities that cause this uh, differential in our health system, not to mention our wellness system as well. Thank you for that. And um, it leads me to think what it was like for your team or the people that you've learned from and with to create this model together in the void that it seems like maybe wasn't there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, it took it took a lot. What they say is we are standing on the shoulders of giants, meaning that we're just part of this evolution. These are issues that have been presented and discussed for a long, long time. And because we also are multicultural psychologists, which means we have an interdisciplinary approach. So we don't only look to psychology as a source of knowledge. We look at so many different uh, disciplines. For instance, there's a famous book in psychology called And the Rat Was Also White meaning that psychology has been a white um, Eastern European uh, discipline for a long, long time. Mm. And and to be honest with you, I, I believe that you, you mentioned about I'm getting an award for the practice of psychology, which to my understanding, this is the first time that a person of color is getting that award. And what I'm saying is that this is just the ceiling uh, the glass or the colored glass ceiling is being broken. That's being recognized by this association. But this is such a collective effort for so many years. And I know that there are going to be other psychologists of color who are going to be acknowledged with this award. Because luckily, we are in a situation in psychology where the... Um, the lens is being expanded to include, you know, issues of marginalized communities and multicultural and even global perspective. I think you had a question about global stuff as well. Absolutely. I am curious how this does fit into, A, the movement to globalize Western mental health, or does this challenge it? Does it offer something different? 
um, it sounds like globalizing would feel interesting to you. So where does it belong? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great question, by the way. Um, I see that in two ways. Okay. One is that there are countries in the world where racial or immigrants or marginalized people are being subjected to trauma, to oppression and what have you. On the other hand, I think we have to be very careful to not export what happens in the United States to the rest of the world. However, if we use the concept of culturally informed analysis and culturally relevant treatment, for example, in India, you know, there's uh, there's more in terms of color, what have you, there's less diversity than here, let's put it that way. But in India, perhaps, and this is my hypothesis, I could be wrong, that the concept of racial trauma can be translated into caste trauma because that society, many aspects of that society in India is characterized by the caste system. So people who are in the lower caste, they are being excluded from a lot of stuff. I mean, they don't have the power that people who are in the higher caste have. So I think that maybe if we were to culturally adapt that concept of racial trauma, maybe it could be a caste trauma. So I'm, this, I'm just, just speculating here. What I'm saying is that given that this is some somewhat of a new concept, but it's not that new, but it's not, uh, it's not in the DSM, let's put it that way, in the diagnostic classification, but where there's a, a, a differential power in a society and that is not addressed in a way that it makes sense that is not oppressing segments of the population, then there's going to be some kind of sociopolitical trauma that needs to be addressed. So what would you say to these people? What would you say to people, perhaps globally or people in the U.S. right now, that could be experiencing what you're calling racial trauma? So um, more or less to um, get critically aware that this is something that is not happening to them alone because part of the problem with trauma is that it's very isolating. The victims usually feel not only that it's their fault, but also that they this is something that they have to deal by themselves. So by addressing it in a more collective way, who else has been affected by this? You know, if we want to equate at some level or see some parallels between racial trauma and another uh, kind of trauma, what I would think of is basically the kind of trauma that people who are in a country where there's a war, a civil war or something like that, that they feel that because they're on this side and now on the other, they've been traumatized. So going back to your question, what would I say to the people globally is, you know, this is something that is a concept that may or may not apply to you. If you think it applies to you, it would be important to identify what parts of your identity are being targeted with oppression that cause you to develop trauma 
which shares some components with PTSD, but it's unique because if you did not belong to that marginalized group, you would not be experiencing this kind of trauma. And is it a similar message to who, what you would say to those folks in the U.S. right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the U.S. is not a homogeneous country. I mean, there's a, I mean, that is their, their rich, this is our riches in a way from many one, as they say. And I think that's really important because this is one of the, the way that we describe the United States, you know, from many one. But in essence, the way it's being worked out is for few, for some few, the, the power differential is so big between those who have and those who don't have. And that creates trauma. Lastly, would you suggest therapy as a forum to provide healing for them or relief for them? Or would you say to explore healing modalities, um, other ways of healing for these folks? Yes. I explained to you that I mentioned that if this therapy has to be a particular kind of therapy, it has to be a therapist that is, has, has a, a sociopolitical perspective that knows the effect of history, systems, um, politics, social differences on the uh, health of the person, that it has to have a decolonial approach, meaning to make sure that the client is not uh, rejecting parts of him or herself because society is rejecting that in him or her. So that has to be addressed through the critical consciousness, that it has to include a perspective where the person is invited to engage in a social justice action defined by the client, not defined by the therapist, Um, that there's creativity, that art can help a lot, if the person can connect, if the client can connect with their creativity and create art, because from art, you can cope better with um, adversity. And there's some kind of art that is called artivism, that is art for the purpose of social justice. You know, so that's another way of engaging. I also mentioned the um, nurturing of the resilience inherent in most people of color who have survived some generation, even dealing with racism. Also, coalitions, solidarity with other members of marginalized group. I think part of the problem that we want to avoid is the divide and conquer situation. So that kind of solidarity helps to heal and not only helps to heal, it also helps to develop strategies to change not only themselves, but the system as well. Thank you for expanding on that. I want to offer just a moment if you have anything else you want to add that's on your mind to to wrap up. Well, I think I want want to wrap up with um, what I have mentioned several times, and that is racism as many types of oppressions affects all of us. And therefore, all of us is 
is so important that all of us, whether we are perpetrator or victim, to become critically aware of our role and to commit to change so we can have a create or co-create a society that is more equitable and is more peaceful, is more respectful of and celebrate our differences. Absolutely. Thank you. I also want to thank you for naming that you're the first person of color receiving that award. Congratulations and thank you again for your thoughtfulness and your leadership on such relevant and prevalent issues that feel very important. And it it seems, you know, since the award is being given to the first person of color, perhaps psychology and psychiatry is also realizing the importance of naming these approaches today. Yes. And remember, I just happened to be there at the right time. This is something (laughs) that Seriously, seriously, because I, mm-hmm. as I told you, you, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that I need to recognize. They have given awards for social justice and education to people of color, but practice of psychology, because practice has always been infused by Western European perspectives. So this is this is important because they're acknowledging. Um, the influences of multiculturalism and feminism and indigenous healings and other kinds of healings outside of psychology. Right. We owe it to the solidarity of those before us as well, is what you're saying. Yes, yes. All right. Thank you again. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates. 